Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. The Biblical World Podcast is hosted by Chris McKinney, Lynn Coick, Mark Jans, and Mary Buck, Oliver Hersey, and Kyle Keimer. We're a collective that's interested in the history, archaeology, culture, and geography of the Bible. And we're a new podcast, so we'd appreciate any help that you could give to us in getting this off the ground. Uh, share the word on Apple Podcast or on whatever media social media platform you use and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Also, if you'd like to help support the podcast, we'd appreciate that. You can go to onscript.study forward slash donate. We're kicking off a new series here. So this episode is going to include an intro that Mark Jansen and, and Chris McKinney do on the five views of the Exodus. And that's a book that, that Mark edited and uh, they're going to be interviewing different people about those five different views. And this episode will also include an interview with Ron Hendel. Enjoy the series. Welcome, listeners, to On Script, the Biblical World podcast. I am your host, Chris McKinney. I'm joined today by uh, co-host Mark Jansen. We are really excited about this uh, this series that we will be going through based upon uh, a book that Mark has edited called The Five Views of the Exodus. We're going to be having each one of the authors who gave these different views uh, on the program. And so as we start off this, this, this mini-series for OnScript, we thought we would give you an overview of the book, as well as an overview of the different views that are presented in the book, so you would have a nice uh, summary at the beginning of this whole process to understand, uh, because as we've seen, many of these scholars can get a bit into the weeds, so we're kind of going to give you the bird's eye view of the different views on the Exodus that are presented in the in the book. So Mark, go ahead and tell us about the book. So uh, I... A couple of years ago, I was helping to sort of review a pamphlet that a campus ministry was planning to pass out uh, on the Exodus and the historicity of it, and, and then kind of they'll branch out to other biblical topics later. And they sent it to me, and I basically had no choice but to cut it to pieces because it was really bad. And I, I mean, their their heart was in the right place, but they didn't know the data. And in the conversation with them about it, they're like, is there a book that has like a back and forth? And I was like, there's going to be. you know. <laughs> so kudos to them for sort of inspiring the idea. Um, and so what I wanted to do was, was get experts together to debate the fundamental issues of the Israelite exodus from Egypt as we have it in the Hebrew Bible, as well as its historicity, its chronology, the theological implications of their view, and give people a one-stop shop for both the data and a dialogue among scholars, which just doesn't happen, even though journals go back and forth. Your average educated layperson isn't going to go track down, you know, Vetus Testamentum 63 and then 67, you know, or whatever it's in. Um, and so I thought, let's bring it all together. Zondervan does a counterpoint series on a number of topics related to um, the Bible, like creation and and things like that. And so they were very much on board as soon as I pitched it to them, really. 
and, and off we went. The idea also being to try to counter some of the blogs and vlogs and the documentaries that are very one-sided. And so this book's got five different views. It's the definition of the opposite of one-sided. And I, I just want people to realize these are very complex topics, and I want scholars to engage the public more because the public is really quite interested in the topic. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and one of the things that I have seen, not only in studying different views about the Exodus over my academic career, but even just listening through uh, the different views that are presented in the book, is that there are many, many more than just simply five views. Um, and But what you guys have done well is you've chosen the five that we might say are, are the most representative of, um, of, of you know, views that take a historical understanding of the Exodus to have some type of uh, connection and presented those views. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other views that are out there, uh, but of course, the series is not 10 views of the Exodus. It's it's uh, five views. Yeah, we have to. Uh, so, it's got to be readable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and some so of the you, views, like if you wanted to get really picky about how many there are, are really sub views of a broader one. So we're trying to represent kind of the broader mainstream-ish views. In, in scholarship and get them distilled into a format that's that's something that educated lay people will enjoy. Right. So our so our listeners will have a kind of primer to go off of. Uh, could you go through each one of these views and give us um, what the basics uh, of that view was and then who held it and presented it in the, in the book? Yeah. So we have four contributors who are pretty much in favor of a historical exodus and a fifth who would essentially say it's hard to track down. I'll explain that more in a minute. Um, so if you hold to a historical exodus, there are essentially three possible dates. Again, in the big picture, we're not trying, most of us aren't trying to get it down to the month or something, but a year range. Um, each of those are based on a combination really of biblical and archeological data. And so, well, of course, we'll leave the full articulation of it to our interviewees. But for now, let me give you the quick rundown. Um, there's the early date, Exodus, and that places it during the first half of the Egyptian New Kingdom in the 18th dynasty, and basically in the middle of the 1400s BC. And that would be either the reign of Thutmosis III or Amenhotep II. Again, the, those kind of smaller details would depend who you talk to. This is the key point, though, for this view in terms of uh, two key points. One, it takes the biblical account very much as a historical account. And two, it reads literally the date given in 1 Kings 6, 1, which tells us that Solomon built the temple in the 480th year after the Israelites left Egypt. So for this view, that is a literal number. You just do the math from when Solomon built the temple, and boom, there's the date of the Exodus. Um, and, of course, Stripling, who represents that view, also uses archaeology and, and other sources. But that's really what it's primarily based on. Conversely, James Hoffmeyer and Peter Feynman both date the Exodus to the reign of Ramses II in the 1200s BC. Um, this is another one of Egypt's most powerful pharaohs, just like Thutmosis III. This is usually called the late date Exodus, but we tried to call it more precisely the 13th century Exodus. And this takes very seriously the historicity of the account as well. And you'll see in Jim's chapter, especially a, a host of Egypt, Egyptisms in the Exodus account. That's kind of his specialty. 
And the key point for their view chronologically is Exodus 1.11, which mentions Pi Ramses as one of the store cities built by the Hebrews in their time in Egypt. Because this city was only used from roughly 1275 to 1130, many do regard it as the key chronological data or datum, and this suggests a 13th century date for them. Critically, they then take 480 years that I just mentioned to be symbolic, and it happens to break down to 12 times 40, and they mention that there's different genre for temple dedication and whether ancients use numbers like we do is certainly something that needs to be thought about they argue um, and so that's the the big points for them now Hoffmeyer and Feynman agree on the date but take a very different approaches I think it's very important for listeners to know Hoffmeyer uses Egyptian data archaeology and understanding of the biblical text to make a case for the historicity of the narrative primarily he's not as interested in the book in doing a whole lot on the chronology. I mean, he does it some, but he really wants to establish the historicity, which is pretty much in keeping with his whole academic career. Feynman is seeking to do something more imaginative, I think you could say. He's looking for the human element in the story, compares it to Egyptian texts, and finds similarities between groups like the Hyksos and Levites, which is one of the points of contention in the book, certainly. Um, then, like Feynman and Hoffmeyer, Gary Rensberg reads the reference in 1 Kings symbolically, but unlike his colleagues, he opts for a slightly later exodus in the 12th century during the reigns of Ramses III. So this would be in, you know, like 1170-something, 1160-something, depending on which part of his reign. Uh, and this is really Egypt's last truly powerful pharaoh, incidentally. Rensberg's view is based on a combination of factors, much like Hoffmeyer's. He's really um, pretty masterful at covering all the different types of data. And that involves settlement archaeology, like settlements in the Levant during the Iron One period, um, and so forth, as well as a thorough understanding of the Hebrew text and the Hebrew Bible. And he sees evidence of a declining empire during Ramses III, which Egyptologists would largely agree with, giving the departure of a number of slaves more likely. And I should note at this point, to one of the points, there's, there's two very obvious points of agreement, and that is that there's a bunch of Semites in Egypt just before and during the New Kingdom, and that the Hebrew, or sorry, that the, that the Hebrew term Elif, given in the census data in Numbers, can be translated a number of ways, and those ways allow us to get at a more believable number when we look at populations of Egyptians and in the Levant. If you do those numbers as they're currently translated into hundreds of thousands, 600,000, whatever, um, Man, you get two million people, they can just take over Egypt. So the contributors largely agree on those kinds of things and disagree elsewhere. And then finally, as a long-winded answer here, but Ronald Hendel has a, definitely a different approach. And he explains that the Exodus is essentially too steeped in layers of cultural memory for scholars to really determine its exact historicity. Uh, he doesn't dismiss it either, but he basically opines that a smaller Exodus is not out of the question, determining those kind of precise details is nearly impossible. Cultural memory then kind of portrays the past with particular emphasis on present relevance. So in other words, the time the text is like finally compiled type of thing. And so they tell the version they want their audience to hear and they make use of it and they re-actualize it and sort of ritualize it. It's a pretty fascinating theory, but it could distort or omit or even fictionalize aspects of the past, he at one point says. And that does not mean he says it's all fiction as far as I you know, understand it. 
but it means it's it's harder to trace. And so that's that's a different kind of view, but a very, very popular one among scholars and is very legitimate and needed definitely to be represented. Great. Well, I'm, I'm for one, I'm excited to see where uh, these interviewees um, take us as, as they try and defend their views, talk about their views, as well as maybe get into some other topics uh, of interest. So I'm really looking forward to this series as it develops. Um, and just kind of as a, uh, a caveat, you might say, or a disclaimer, uh, both Mark and I have, have worked together before on things related to the Exodus. In fact, we have hopefully a, a book coming out. Uh, it kind of depends on us at this point. What's well, coming out? Uh, I don't know if we can say <laughs> when. <laughs> when. We can't say when yet, uh, but it, we're both really excited about uh, on the historical geography of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And in particular, uh, the wilderness wanderings themselves have not really had as much um, as much study put into them in the last century or so. So we're both really excited about that in the near future. But because of that, we both know that we have a, a similar viewpoint. And both of us would espouse to a 13th century uh, exodus and, uh, and, and conquest as we move forward with that. Although uh, we might say that there are, are many different aspects to this rather than just simply choosing a date. How you arrive at that date, how you uh, deal with the evidence in the Bible is all very important, uh, as well as the Egyptological evidence, and archaeological evidence. So much to discuss, and I'm really looking forward to this series. And without further ado, let's get right to it. All right. Thanks, Chris. So this is uh, an interview with Dr. Ronald Hendel, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible and Jewish Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author and er or editor of numerous books and articles on the Hebrew Bible, including the Hebrew Bible, a critical edition, the Book of Genesis, a biography, and steps to a new edition of the Hebrew Bible. He is a well-regarded expert on memory and its impact on culture, history, and the Hebrew Bible. We are very grateful, Ron, for you joining us here, and very grateful for you being involved in the uh, Five Views on the Exodus project. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Um, it, was, it was especially uh, noteworthy, I think, to mention that your view represents uh, a bit of an outlier in the book, in that your view is not as determined to talk about maybe the historicity so much as some of the other views. So I think it, it's you to be commended for taking on that, that task, knowing that you would maybe be a little bit on an island there. So again, I'm much appreciated there. Well, I'm used to being on an island. I prefer that it be one of the Hawaiian ones, but I'll take what I get. <laughs> yeah, take what you can get, right? Um, so the, the book itself is, is going to basically give each contributor their own chapter to outline their overall view, and then the other authors have a chance to respond to it, and then that chapter's original author has sort of the final say. That's the structure of the book, and we wanted to talk to Ron today about the cultural memory and the exodus and how these things tie together. So, Ron, if you could just kind of define cultural memory for us and how it relates to the exodus event. I like to start with a, a simple definition of cultural memory simply as a, a culture's representation of the past with present relevance. And so this includes the biblical representation of the past, which had certainly present relevance for uh, the authors and composers and the audiences of the various biblical books, and certainly has continued to have uh, present relevance in the uh, thousands of years since then in Judaism and Christianity and Western culture. So cultural memory pertains not only to 
the you know composition of the biblical accounts of the Exodus, but also to its interpretation uh, over the last thousands of years. Right. So we would have, um, for your view, maybe the the first strand of it would would it be fair to say is when it was actually written? Yeah. Well, I would say that. Uh, the writers are also drawing upon the cultural memory of their time. So they are in some ways crystallizing or interpreting or sometimes reshaping uh, those cultural memories in various ways. And each of the different authors does it in different ways. And similarly, for example, the prophets talk about the Exodus, uh, you mm-hmm. know, Jeremiah and second Isaiah and so forth. And they do it in, their ways as well, but they're all drawing upon cultural memory. So cultural memory is kind of a process that each of these uh, writers and texts that we have are individual crystallizations of that larger stream of tradition. Okay, and so what what does that do for uh, or for your view on the historicity, or can it be traced? How does it impact trying to get at the reality of behind the story, if there is one? Yeah, well, what, if you start with this idea of cultural memory, it makes the search for historical events and historical precursors to the stories more complicated, okay? Because I'm not reading the stories as transparent windows onto actual events, which I think is hard to do because we have different stories, Okay, and, and, you know, there's lots of tensions and conflicts and different interpretations in the difference. Starting with the oldest version, which I think is the uh, poetic version, the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15, where Moses and the Israelites are singing this victory hymn uh, to God. So each of these accounts that we have gives a different take on both the meaning and the, you know, specific details of this uh, memory uh, from the past. So, you know, like any memories, I mean, you've all played this game, you get different people together and say, you know, what happened or something. It's sort of like a game of telephone. And you tell people what you say and they change it a little bit and they change it a little bit. Uh, You know, with my father-in-law, he would tell the same stories over and over again about his fishing trips. You know, and the fish got bigger and there were more of them. Uh, so memories are always changing, you know, individual memories and cultural memories, collective memories. So it's very, so once you, you know, have a sense of that kind of, uh, diversity and variation within memories, it's hard to ascertain what historical events lie behind them in the absence of other specifically historical evidence. Okay, so if you just have the biblical accounts of the Exodus and you don't have like an Egyptian account or something, uh, it's hard to feel your way back into the actual events. Now, the other difficulty in ascertaining the uh, historical events behind the accounts of the Exodus, the memories of the Exodus, is what the archaeologists tell us. So the archaeologists, of which I'm not one, I'm a text guy, the archaeologists say... There weren't that many people in the ancient Near East. There weren't that many people in ancient Egypt. This is one of the topics that people address in the the book, in the Uh book that we participated in. Um, Moreover, that, uh, you know, early Israel was not formed as a result of the 
entry into the land of people from the outside and the conquest of Canaan, but was an indigenous kind of peasant settlement of a previously uninhabited area in the Judean and Israelite highlands. So if the if what the archaeologists are telling us is true, and they derive this from, you know, dirt and pottery and and settlement patterns and stuff that they find in the ground, if they tell us that early Israel was an indigenous Canaanite phenomenon, a kind of opening of a new frontier in the highlands, and that they were Canaanites, mostly Canaanites or local shepherd people or nomads or whatever, but it wasn't an invasion of people who escaped from Egypt, that complicates the picture too. So if big chunks of the story are kind of falsified by archaeological excavations, then how do we account for the story itself? Okay, so so I'm starting by assuming that the archaeologists know what they're talking about, you know, because they have little pieces of pottery and stuff. So if early Israel was an indigenous movement of local Canaanites, then, you know, the Exodus wasn't what the Bible says it was, because the Bible says the Exodus is all these people coming out of Egypt and then, uh, you know, conquering the land and they were outsiders and so forth. So if they were insiders, my question is, why would they cultivate or receive or buy into this story of having been slaves to Egypt for hundreds of years, and then God defeats the Egyptians and liberates the Israelites from Egyptian oppression, and then Israel emerges as a people. So my the only way I can figure that out is to look at what I think is the obvious solution, and that is for hundreds of years before the rise of ancient Israel, all of the land of Canaan was under the hegemony of the Egyptian empire. So in ideological terms, all of the Canaanites were slaves to the Egyptian pharaoh. Okay. Another thing that scholars have noted for many years is that during the Egyptian empire in Canaan, which is around, you know, from about 1500 to about 1125 BC, uh, during that period, a lot of uh, Canaanite slaves were in Egypt. Okay, so pharaohs would come up and they would reconquer this Canaanite uh, territory. Each time a new king would come up, he would go on a victory parade and he would take uh, captives from Canaan back to Egypt. Okay, and so there, and there was also like a big slave trade between Canaan and Egypt. So there are a lot of Canaanite slaves in Egypt. I assume that some of them, after the Egyptian empire collapsed, went back to Canaan. So I, I would draw a, a link between these two phenomena, that there's lots of Egyptian slaves in Egypt who, in the collapse of the Egyptian empire around 1125 or so BC, would go back to Canaan. And at the same time, the people in Canaan, who in their own eyes had been slaves to Pharaoh for hundreds of years, were now liberated from Egyptian rule and Egyptian oppression. So if you put those th two things together, you can start seeing where the historical events lie that could generate this story of all of Israel being liberated slaves from Egypt, that God had defeated Pharaoh and the people now could have their own land and could serve Yahweh instead of Pharaoh um, and form their own nation in a state of freedom rather than in a state of slavery. So I would say in broad strokes, those are the actual historical events 
that I think could easily have given rise to this sort of memory. And this memory then serves as a kind of um, magical, you know, alchemy that transforms this people from Canaanites into Israelites. That is to say, the story itself is what gives them a common identity and creates the sense of, of uh, the birth of this free nation of Israel, celebrating their liberation from Egyptian bondage. So that's, in the broad strokes, that's kind of my theory. But I think if you start with a certain, uh, a couple of um, starting points, it's kind of a natural theory that makes sense. And it makes sense of the historical evidence. Okay, thank you. Uh, that's a, a really interesting overview. A lot of layers there, which I think is one reason I wanted to do this book. Another book I have in mind years down the road is just something like a philosophy of the Exodus, because I think your your point about starting points is really interesting. You know, like if you start from the, well, let's see what we can find of Egypt in the Bible, you'll probably end up with more of a historicity defense of it. If you start with the cultural memory, you're looking more at the kind of things you just mentioned. And I think a lot of it comes down to which types of evidence different scholars prioritize. You mentioned archaeology versus text. We actually have an archaeologist here with us. Chris, you got anything you want to add on the archaeology side? Yeah, I'll, I'll just add a couple of things. Uh, I appreciate the the exposition of the idea. And I, I, I'm also a, a, a big fan of the idea of, of cultural memory and playing a huge role in how we read these texts, um, you know, even thinking about how, you know, one of the things that gets me really excited is someone who spends a lot of time in um, in the land and in Israel and Jordan and Egypt and these places is, you know, some of these stories, thinking about something that's that's better established, um, like sometime during the kingdom era, um, stories that mention specific places, specific features, you know, these stories weren't like written while they're walking around with them, you know, that the, the characters don't have the, the stories while they're happening. And so it's actually the places themselves, such as we can think of, you know, uh, Samson fighting in the Sorek Valley and the Sorek Valley or the Battle of David and Goliath, where those valleys themselves are kind of like the, the the scriptures for the ancients that are bringing to mind these things, and so the whole idea of cultural memory and how land and story all connect are, I think, are are very interesting. And so I think it's certainly, however you end up on the historical side of this uh, question, um, that cultural memory aspect is is so important to consider, and it's often overlooked, particularly by people that want to argue for a high level. Uh, historical um, background to it. Now, about the archaeology, um, I would say that um, in general, um, there it's not monolithic, that there is a, a kind of a diversity among uh, archaeologists on this question, particularly in connection with what's happening in Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, today situated in uh, the West Bank, in the central part of the land of Israel, whatever you want to call it, Palestinian territories, West Bank. Um, and one of the things that's most distinctive to me um, is the fact that we do have this um, kind of explosion of new settlements that appear in the highlands sometime, and this is really the hard part, is we don't have definitive dates um, about that. Uh, but sometime in around the beginning of the 12th century, or perhaps even as early as the, the late 13th century, and these sites aren't on the old um, Canaanite city-states like uh, like Shechem and Shiloh and other places, but they're scattered throughout. 
And some things that I've done on work on recently is, is uh, if you compare the, the cities that appear in the Assimeria Ostraca, um, which is a, uh, a set of, of documents that were found in the 1930s in the city of Sebastia, Samaria, Samaria, a number of those sites actually are very close to what you read in Joshua 17 with the uh, the, the towns of Manasseh and some of the tribes of Manasseh. And the, many of these have been identified. And one of the interesting things you see is that if you compare that settlement um, to uh, both the Samaria Ostraca and what you read in Joshua 17, is that almost all of those sites are founded sometime in the very beginning of the Iron One and continue to be related to uh, the, um, the, 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 the sites into the Iron Two, that is when, when um, Samaria is destroyed, something like 722 BC by the, by the Assyrians. And so my point is, is that you can almost make the case that those still are the best evidence for think, and I'm talking about the, the highland archaeological evidence, is still the best archaeological evidence which fits in with somebody new arriving on the scenes. On the other hand, on the other hand, um, I think those who argue um, on the historicity side often argue to the point of ignoring biblical um, texts which talk about very clear local inhabitants, whether we're talking about the genealogies that we have in Chronicles, uh, whether we look at specific examples like Rahab in the story as a, or the Gibeonites in Joshua that are uh, connected as foreigners uh, to, this, to this whole thing. So I, I actually think in the biblical text itself, there's pretty good indicators that a large chunk of Israel is not uh, what we call, you know, uh, uh, the true-blooded Israel, if that even is something. So um, I, I would say that these are great questions to have, and the more and more you look at it, the more you see that we're all kind of talking about really similar things. It's just how much weight we add to different parts of the evidence. So uh, that would be my, uh, not necessarily pushback, but my take about thinking about it for a little bit from more of an archaeological perspective. Yeah, I think the archaeological side of things is, is just about as debated at the moment as the textual side. Maybe not quite as, as debated, because I think the archaeology right now is doing really good work on big patterns, but not able to lock down a lot of the specifics, like you mentioned, a precise date. But they're showing big settlement patterns and trends and demographs and things like that. One, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to take this evidence for the early settlement, and I think Chris gave a good summary of this. You know, they're, they're moving into places where there weren't previous settlements, and so it's kind of a peaceful thing. It's kind of a migration rather than a conquest, as it were. And what I'm stressing is that this movement into the highlands is happening at precisely the same time that the Egyptian empire is collapsing. And so I'm drawing a, a line between those two dots that, that would suggest, and of course I can't prove this, that these people who are settling in the highlands are making this correlation, that they're creating a new society in the wake of the collapse of the Egyptian empire, which had been ruling quite harshly, uh, particularly in the latter phases of the Egyptian empire. But they'd been ruling for hundreds of years, but the last phase was particularly harsh. And there's evidence that when the Egyptians left, all of their uh, garrisons and fortresses were burned down to the ground. So you get a sense that the locals we're kind of happy to see them leave. And so if you yeah. tie these things together, you can see that this that, that, that the 
liberation from Egyptian bondage could easily fit into the story of these people who were settling into the highlands at precisely this period. Could sync up with the late Bronze Age collapse when people are, like the Israelites have this sort of opportunity in the wake of the Hittite and Egyptian empires collapse and maybe part of forging a new identity as they go. And, and, to, and to underscore your point, one of the interesting things, as you as you mentioned, is if you look at the geography of those texts, like Joshua 17 goes out of its way to mention the chariots of Beit Shan. I mean, it, it's, and it's precisely where you have a major Egyptian garrison into the 12th century. Uh, now, again, in terms of when it's written, what these memories are based upon, there's a bit of a debate, but I would agree with the, the basic idea of the uh, of the transition that we have going on there. So um, I, otherwise, I mean, if we think about Beit Shan, why to talk about there being chariots at a place that the Egyptians have this kind of mini fortress um, into from the entire New Kingdom, um, but especially as it continues into the 12th century, right during this time of settlement. So I, I would actually agree with you on that point for sure. I like you bringing in the Beit Shan thing, because you're right, that was a major Egyptian garrison site and was one of the places that was abandoned at the end of the uh, Egyptian empire. Like we're, like we're leaving our military bases in Afghanistan. The Egyptians left their big garrison at uh, Beit Shan, and, and that was a big you know, military center for, for Egypt. Oh, that's nice. I'm glad you brought in that Joshua 17. Thank you. Yeah, so one of the other things I always kind of wondered, wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, and full candor, I subscribe to the late date Exodus. Uh, I don't think the numbers are translated accurately, right? We talk about Eleph and things like that. So just kind of my general view. Um, but I wonder why there's always this perceived tension between the historicity part without getting into any individuals or anything and the cultural memory view. Because to me, it seems oral tradition would have been so important to ancient uh, Israelites and other ancient groups that they would at least try to get these details, some of them right. And we do have all the sort of Egyptian isms and some of the loan words that I, I think might carry a memory of a time in Egypt, but not, not two million of them, right? But why can't that still also fit with what you're saying, essentially, if it's a smaller, maybe not obviously two million large group? Well, I would, I mean, I agree with you that things like Egyptian loan words are you know, real data, real evidence of, of a clearly a cultural connection. Uh, the question is, you know, where would that have come from? Where would that contact have been initiated? And uh, people have argued, uh, you know, Bill Schneiderwind and others, that um, what you have with some of those Egyptian loanwords, because some of them have to do with scribal uh, words, like words like ink and pen and things like that. Uh, some of that arguably stems from the Egyptian administration in Canaan uh, and, that, and, and the use of um, hieratic numbers, for example. So this is, this is the bureaucracy that existed in the land of Canaan during the Egyptian empire there, during the Egyptian administration. So that, I think, is a very likely place where so, at least some of those more technical Egyptian loanwords uh, would have come into uh, early Hebrew. And, and people have said that, you know, there might be continuities with things you see in the stories of Solomon and his imperial administration with older Egyptian administrative customs. So the Egyptian empire, again, would, would be, I think, the most likely source for that kind of uh, cultural and linguistic contact. Some of the administrators must have been able to speak Canaanite. 
Yeah, some of them had to be bilingual. I mean, we know that the Egyptians are deliberately doing this. With Thutmose III is bringing back the princes, raising him in the court, which actually makes Moses being there not as far-fetched, right? Foreigners can actually be in those contexts. Opera El's tomb, he's a vizier with the Theophoric L name. So the, the picture is, I think, getting a bit more complex than the old you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of view. And also, let's not be so dogmatic that we don't also recognize valuable new theories, too. And um, the, the Opperell tomb is pretty fascinating. They're just now finally publishing it, but they found it back in the 80s. Um, it's an unbelievable example. Uh, you know, West Semitic officials and stuff. And, in, in mm -hmm. during, and this is, again, during the uh, Egyptian Empire period, the, the, the New Kingdom. <laughs> And so a lot of Canaanites are there, and they're rising up in the bureaucracy and stuff. And so it's just an amazing tapestry of, of these cultural connections. And even stretching into, you know, at least the accounts that have Solomon marrying Pharaoh's daughter, right? And I know there's, of course, discussions about that historically as well. But just the, the fact that the story is even told is that they're glad Egypt's gone, but Egypt's presence still sort of lingers sort of either way. Yeah, well, Egypt is always a, a superpower in the region. Even even when it's relatively weak, it's still a superpower, and you can't ignore it. You know, it's like Canada trying to ignore the United States. They wouldn't even try. Even during the Depression, they have to acknowledge it, right? <laughs> they would try, but you just can't get away with it. All right. Um, I don't want to uh, have our Zoom meeting end on us prematurely here. Chris, did you have some... Uh yeah, let's uh, let's break this up a little bit, and I, I would say that this this so far is really really interesting discussion. But what we like to do on our uh, on our podcast is to break it up with a a few fun questions. Um, so, um, coffee or tea or nothing? Coffee. Coffee. Okay, coffee. No question, especially if you Excellent. grind it yourself. Excellent choice. Yeah, I figured, uh, I think you're in, in Berkeley area. I, I figured it would be coffee, uh, um, which I would wholeheartedly concur with. Uh, although tea every once in a while, but that's kind of, you know. Um, most important recent book that was published on the Hebrew Bible. Well. And it can, and it can be your own if you want. Okay, I was just going to ask if I can shill for my own book. Yes, please do. I think the book that I wrote with Jan Yostin, How Old is the Hebrew Bible?, is a is an important intervention. Of course, I would think that, but that's what I think. Can, can you give us just a, a few sentence uh, summary of that book to plug it a bit more? Yeah, well, the, the answer to the question of how old is the Hebrew Bible, the answer is pretty darn old. Uh, as you guys know, there's been a lot of controversies in how old you date certain parts of the Bible, particularly the Pentateuch, but also the prophets and so forth. And we're arguing that there's linguistic data, uh, our understanding of the, the phases of biblical Hebrew, that have not really been integrated into this kind of inquiry, and that it changes the, the dates of how old things are, that they're older than a lot of uh, recent scholarship thinks. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, I, I haven't read the book, but, I, but I, I'll put it on the list. I'll, I'll put it on the list. I, I, I was aware of it, but I haven't, I haven't read it yet. There, i got to okay. say, there's a couple of nice pictures in there, but the rest the prose is pretty heavy. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the pictures. Uh, I had one last question before we uh, are out of time here. 
I thought on an interview about cultural memory on the eve of Passover, maybe we could uh, get your thoughts on the importance of the tradition, the Exodus tradition and story, regardless of the historicity uh, on, on people today. Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, uh, and I would say that, um, you know, cultural memory has its own kind of way of invigorating itself. Or, no, no let, me, let me put it this way, that the Passover story, even in the Bible, presents itself as cultural memory. That is to say, already in the middle of the story, they're saying how, what you should say to your children and grandchildren about this story. The story kind of comes to a halt in Exodus 12 and 13, giving the rules for how to celebrate the Passover, which is the time when you are to remember this story and retell the story. So in a sense, the concept of cultural memory is front-loaded into the story itself in the book of Exodus. Uh, and this continues to this day in the Passover Haggadah, which I'm going to be using tomorrow night to celebrate the Passover. And it's all about remembering. And but, but, but it's more than just remembering. It's also placing yourself within that memory. Okay, so, you, so there's a part of the Haggadah that says every person celebrating here should regard him or herself as if they were there. So it's a way. So it's not just even a memory. It's a reactualization of the past in the present, which helps to shape the identity and the sense of community and the sense of purpose and values of that community in the present, but based on these memories of the past. So, so the idea of memory and of the reactualization of memory is really thematized in the story, and it's really thematized in the ritual that is that reenactment of the memory. So I think that this approach to the, uh, you know, the Exodus as cultural memory is something that's strongly there in the story, and it's strongly there in, um, in uh, the celebration of the story. So tomorrow night when I read, you know, this is the bread of affliction, let all who are hungry come eat, uh, let all who are needy come and celebrate the Passover, at present we are slaves, next year maybe we, may, may we be free. You know, this is a traditional thing to say that actualizes the, the story, it makes the memory come alive, and it informs your sense of reality. So that's what cultural memory is and what cultural memory does. And so even though I know that the historical questions are complicated, you know, I'm going to enjoy this meal and celebrate it. And of course, it helps that you drink four glasses of wine, too. <laughs> that also helps to actualize the memory. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I really like that point. And what, what, what I find about it so interesting is, is that thinking about cultural memory and actualizing yourself, and we've, you know, we've had some of this discussion about this very question about, about Passover, and we've obviously ha asked Christians these same types of questions. And I think much could be learned about that cultural memory aspect, both in applying, of course, the elements of, with, with the Exodus and seeing yourself, but even reading some aspects of the New Testament, they're kind of trying to do the same thing with elements like baptism and such. And it's part of the Jewish Christian tradition that uh, people don't really think about. They think of it more of just a ritual, but it's about reenacting these these uh, these events and, and seeing yourself in them that um, whether they're historical or not, and that's where much of this discussion has come, is it's undeniable that this is the the power of them, that they that they have an, an impact upon people within this tradition. Absolutely. And in the Passover ceremony, you raise the matzah. In the New Testament, it's the Last Supper that is their Passover Seder. And Jesus raises the matzah and says, this is my body. And he raises the wine, so this is my blood. 
the memory of that is such a powerful memory. And it's a, again, it's a recrystallization of the Passover memory. But it becomes yeah. one of the central memories and actualizations of the past in the rituals of uh, Christianity. So this stuff just goes on and on. I love the idea that it's not just a sort of passive memory, but it's very active. I think that's really intriguing and, and valuable to both people of Jewish or Christian belief sets. And I think part of the eating is important. You know, that you're eating the wafer, you're eating the matzah, you're drinking the wine. And so it's a kind of bodily memory as well as a kind of cognitive or intellectual one. Of course, I like food, so there you go. <laughs> Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks again, Ron. It's been a treat. We enjoyed it. Um, we really appreciate be, you being on, and um, we'd love to have you on again in the future. And uh, we want to thank our listeners for tuning in to uh, this, this mini-series on, uh, on the Exodus and different views. It's been very stimulating so far, and we hope we're giving you a variety of the research questions and answers that are currently in scholarship that uh, these these scholars have contributed to. So uh, until next time, we'll catch you on OnScript Biblical World podcast. And thanks to Ron and Mark uh, for their simulating discussion. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>